It's Friday, June the 9th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, a British journalist, Dutch News contributing editor and election fatigue sufferer, and I'm joined as usual by my colleague at Dutch News and walking argument for the PVV, Molly Quell, our other contributor, Paul Peters, a master's student in civil engineering and twittering taxi driver, is still working off a late shift at uh, De Beste Social Awards in Amsterdam. Where he did not win, sadly. No, no he didn't. He, he was a very, very strong contender in the category of uh, most uh, frequently twittering taxi driver. He was supposed to be here today and then sort of messaged this morning to say mm. he wasn't going to make it, so I think we're mildly concerned that he has fallen into a canal and yeah, is, well, is twittering yeah. from there. Or well, he might just be slumped in a corner. Yes. And, uh, he'll, he'll wake up sometime mid-afternoon. If you see Paul or, or see him on Twitter, please let us know. We're looking for him. <laughs> right. And how's your week been, Gordon? Uh, well, I'm still kind of uh, reeling from the uh, general election result in the UK, which has uh, surprised absolutely everybody, I think, including all the people who are in actually contesting it. I heard that uh, departments in the, in the British government are totally ill-prepared for anything but a Tory victory, so they don't really know what to do now. Apparently the education department had uh, just assumed it was going to be a Tory minister again and they hadn't made any preparations for any alternative scenario, which you thought was a lesson I would have learnt last year when no one prepared for Brexit, and yeah. then Brexit happened. Or perhaps had learned from, you know, your your esteemed cousins in the US when no <laughs> one prepared for a Trump presidency. Yeah, no, I think we're just gradually trying to one-up each other at the moment. We, we, we had Brexit, and then you elected Trump, and now Tories have decided to, um, uh, to sabotage their own majority in Parliament. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what the US will do in, in the autumn. Well, uh, you know, yesterday we were trying to one-up you guys by having the, uh, the Comey hearings, you know, the, the FBI director... Uh, hearings, which were quite fascinating and uh, and led to some excellent uh, Twitter banter. Coming up uh, in Dutch news, uh, we'll hear why companies are concerned about a lack of international school places, how Amsterdam's cheesemakers have become big wheels in the tourist economy, and what Rotterdam did to commemorate the sordid demise of a male duck. The coalition talks restarted this week, with the new chief negotiator, Herman Tienkvillink, inviting Gert-Jung Segers of the Christian Uni and Jesse Klaver, leader of Groen Links, for talks. The two parties are the only realistic partners who can form a majority with the three so-called motorblock parties, which are Mark Rutte's Fefe Day, Sibon Buma's Christian Democrats, and Alexander Pechtold's D66. On Wednesday, Prime Minister Mark Rutte and Jesse Klaver met in private at Tienkvillink's home in Scheveningen, but it's unclear if any progress has been made. On Wednesday, uh, the three parties and Klaver met up again at a secret location which turned out to be the official residence of the Prime Minister, the Katz House in The Hague, and on Thursday, photographers were busy snapping away at the four party leaders who were all seen in the gardens uh, talking intensely into their telephones. But we don't really know if we're any closer to a government or not. Yeah, so my favourite bit of news from this week is that Dominique van der Heide, who's sort of famous for standing in the same place in the Twitter comer, now has a new place to stand. Yeah, she's a political reporter on uh, well, NOS, and particularly on News here, and um, you see her every night on NOS uh, in exactly the same spot at the top of the escalators and Twitter camera. But yesterday she was outside the cut's house, so nice for her to have some different scenery. According to the Financiale Dachblad this week, the shortage of spaces in international schools is beginning to cause problems for companies. The problem is particularly acute in The Hague. Countrywide, half of the country's international schools have waiting lists, which makes it challenging for companies to recruit international talent, as employees are thus unable to enroll their children in school. The Ministries of Education and Economic Affairs have drawn up a list of 11 items to help reduce the waiting list, but as enrollment has risen 47%, this is proving to be challenging. I suppose the obvious question here is uh, why do these... uh, 
students all attend international schools rather than just go to local schools? In short, the language, basically. Most of these students, of course, don't speak Dutch, um, so they can't participate in local schools. Also, international schools often have more resources available for dealing with students who have, for example, high security requirements, such as the children of diplomats. And they're also better able to meet the needs of children who move frequently and experience homesickness and identity issues. I mean, I, I know this sort of growing up in this experience that you, it's, it's quite a different life, I think, when you um, move every two to three years versus the kids who are in the local school who have probably lived in the same area for their entire lives um mm. and so they're they're a bit better about dealing with these kinds of things yeah and they also rolled out in uh, preparing dutch families who are about to move abroad uh, yeah. where they they can then have their children educated say in english so they're moving to english-speaking countries and have a slightly softer landing yeah and the, you know, the sort of transition in between right because education systems are different in every country and so this way that the kids often have a standard international curriculum that things mm. are things are quite similar Two teenage boys have been in court this week accused of killing two 14-year-old schoolgirls in unrelated incidents that shot the Bible Belt region over the Whitson holiday weekend. Romy Neuburg was found dead in a nature reserve in Hoeferlaken near Amersfoort on Friday afternoon. A 14-year-old boy who went to the same school has been admitted killing and sexually abusing her and is being held in custody. On Sunday, the body of Savannah Decker was found in a ditch on an industrial estate in nearby Bunschoter. A 16-year-old boy has been arrested and appeared in court accused of killing her. But these cases are not related to each other, right? As was sort of initially speculated. Yeah, there was speculation because the two places uh, where the uh, girls' bodies were found were only 20 kilometres apart. Um, but it seems that it's just one of these bizarre coincidences instances that uh, these two yeah, very sad killings have happened um, in, uh, over the same weekend. In the case of the 14-year-old girl, uh, Romy is particularly sensitive because the uh, school the two children went to is a school for special educational needs. The um, the boys confessed in that case, but there's obviously a lot of detail that uh, you know we just don't know about. Yeah, and one of the uh, PVV MPs uh, went to Twitter, of course, and was calling them uh, beasts, yeah. Yeah, it didn't stop Khidi uh, Makasova, uh, who's an MP for the PVV, uh, you know, going on Twitter and uh, saying, using the case to say that 14-year-olds should be given life sentences. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, interesting social media sort of backlash about this. We, of course, posted this uh, an update to this story on our, on our own Facebook page when I was checking the comments this morning. I mean, people were quite savagely sort of demanding that the names of the of the accusers be identified and that their pictures be posted and these sorts of things, which seems you know, really terrible. I can't imagine that that's going to make, you know, the families of these girls feel any better to see the the, the face of their daughter's murderer splashed all over the media. Yeah, well, who knows? I mean, these are obviously two very, two very shocking cases. You know, they've happened in small communities in, uh, in, in usually quiet regions of the Netherlands um, where everybody knows each other. And, you know, they've, there were community events this week in both places. Uh, there was a, um, a silent vigil, one of the girls, and a community meeting for the other. The families actually stayed away. I think they, they found it too painful to confront the situation uh, uh, at the moment. But yeah, it's, it always raises kind of uh, uh, you know strong emotions. Obviously, when when teenage girls uh, are are killed in these kind of circumstances. But uh, you know the, the the Dutch system has always been to treat um, uh, particularly children and teenagers, even when they commit really you know, serious offences like murder, uh, humanely and take into account their situations, particularly in the you know, case where you have children who go to special needs schools, there could be any kind of you know issues going on there that uh, we just don't know about. It's my understanding that the uh, the police have appealed for some information in, in related to these cases, right? Uh, yeah, they've, uh, both the cases were featured on Opsporing for Zocht, which is a kind of uh, the um, uh, the TV programme uh, where the police appeal for help from the public. Um, and one particular detail they're looking for is that uh, Savannah's bike was found several kilometres away from the uh, the scene of the crime uh, locked up at a bus stop on the outskirts of Samford and it's a black Cortina bike and uh, they're trying to find out exactly how it got there and who might have moved it. Well, our condolences to the family and uh, we hope the, the police can move forward with the investigation. 
The city of Amsterdam has abandoned an experiment that would allow shops in the city center to stay open 24-7. According to Alderman Kasia Ollengren, only 17 shops uh, subscribed for this pilot project, but there were only shops aimed at tourists, such as ice cream and souvenir shops. Those behind the round-the-clock opening had claimed it would benefit Amsterdamers. The plan was launched in 2015, but was met by fierce protests from both local residents and shop owners. So people in Amsterdam won't be able to snip out at three in the morning for uh, groceries. No, no. Which I uh, thought there'd be quite a market for with, uh, with all the coffee shops, right? So, yeah, you would think so. And also, I mean, just, you know, I think uh, coming from the US where, where I'm quite open to things being open much longer, um, it's not uncommon to have grocery stores being open 24 hours a day. You think it would be a, a thing that, that people would like, right? That if you if you come home late, you can stop in or if you miss the six o'clock closing of the Albert Hein, that there's another option for you to go to, to, you know, pick up your groceries for the next day. Or I can imagine, you know, that, People with sick kids sometimes want to pop out and get a ginger ale or whatever. So I, I or if you just got a new baby and it wakes up at three in the morning right. and you know you want to sort of go out somewhere. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I know it's been a constant sort of long running gripe from people living in Amsterdam. Say so it makes the city feel sort of quite parochial that the shops all shut uh, at night time. But um, obviously, when they tried it in practice, uh, people didn't go for it. Yeah, I mean it's it's similar here in Delft. So Delft is um, considered one of these quote unquote tourist cities where the shops are allowed to stay open past I think six, but most places close at at eight or or ten and often aren't open on Sundays. And I tend to find this scheduling quite irritating, but apparently uh, there's not enough of people who share the, the same feelings. Obviously, everyone else manages to organise their shopping on Saturday. One type of Amsterdam boutique that's going from strength to strength, or maybe that should be mild to extra mature, is its cheese shops. The number of cheesemongers in the capital has grown by 80% in the last decade, according to statistics agency CBS. One in every 15,000 Amsterdamers is a cheese merchant, twice as many per head as in the rest of the country. The CBS says the growth of the tourist trade has created a surge in demand for specialist cheese outlets. On the other hand, other traditional retailers are being squeezed out. Greengrocers declined by 30% in the last 10 years, and the number of butcher shops has also fallen. But these cheese shops will not be allowed to stay open 24 hours a day. <laughs> no, you still can't get cheese at 2 in the morning. Yeah, I find this very disappointing. It would be nice to get cheese at 2 in the morning, I think. Yeah. So, Gordon, what's your favourite Dutch cheese? Well, it tends to be sort of measured on the strength, and I sort of fluctuate between sort of um, young belegen and belegen. Okay, good to How about you? Uh, I have zero opinions on this. <laughs> it's a it's an oft topic of discussion in my household because, of course, I have a Dutch partner, and he does most of the grocery shopping. And so, I if I make the grocery list, I will just generically put cheese on there, and this, <laughs> he finds this to be outrageous. But I I don't really eat that much cheese. Maybe I should not confess this, as I just got permanent residency. You just got permanent residency, and now you're telling us you don't eat cheese. I don't, it's not that I don't eat cheese, it's just that, like, I don't feel that strongly about the different sort of flavors of a lot of these cheeses. I mean, you know, a mozzarella from an Emmentaler, sure, fine, there's quite a bit of difference there, but to be honest, you know, young Belecha, old Belecha, 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 I don't have any clue, they all just kind of taste the same to me. Gordon. Do you know what June 5th was? I have no idea. It was Dead Duck Day. Dead Duck Day. Yes, you heard that right. <laughs> At exactly 1755, on June 5th, the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam gathers to commemorate a loud bang, which turned out to be a male duck crashing into the museum's glass facade and resulting in the untimely demise for the ballard. However, the duck's adventure did not end in death, as it was the victim of rape by another male duck, thus leading to the first recorded case of homosexual necrophilia in the duck world. And his death is commemorated with a moment of silence and a six-course dinner. 
of the duck. In addition to being uh, killed by the windowpane, the duck was then violated. Yes. And, and did they do anything with the, with the remains of, of the duck? Was it? Yes, the duck was stuffed and is now included in the Animals with a Backstory exhibition at the museum, which also includes um, the Domino's Mus, uh, the Tweedacomer Mouse, which was the mouse that was famous for terrifying the, the ladies and gentlemen of the <laughs> parliament in the Netherlands. And the Domino's Mus, we should explain as well, that was a bird that flew into a domino uh, demonstration, right? Yes, and was shot and killed, causing a huge uproar <laughs> yeah. in the Netherlands. Uh, yeah, there's a there's an exhibition of animals with a backstory, and some scientist guy collects these animals and uh, has an exhibition about this. So they bring the duck out for the Dead Duck Day to have a bit of a, a moment of silence <laughs> and a commemoration. And, and then, they all solemnly sit down and tear into a, into a meal of duck. Not just yeah. a meal, six courses six of course. duck. Well, we'll be discussing the parliamentary investigation into the Netherlands' tax haven status after this word from our sponsors. Here in Holland is a new podcast for internationals living in the Netherlands. It is a twice-weekly podcast which focuses on the stories of internationals and expats. The podcast covers topics from manners to chance encounters, and they interview the Dutch and non-Dutch alike to get their insights, advice and stories, ranging from the funny to the sad. Here in Holland is currently creating an entirely crowdsourced podcast and welcomes your submissions. You can send your stories via WhatsApp. Find more information on their website, www.hereinholland.com. The podcast is available in iTunes and other podcasting apps. If you're interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. An investigation began in the Dutch Parliament this week into the rules that allow multinational companies to avoid tax by registering their offices here in the Netherlands. The country was ranked third in Oxfam's global league table of tax havens behind the Cayman Islands and Bermuda, largely because of the large number of firms that use shell companies. It comes on the back of disclosures in the Panama Papers, which highlighted the extent to which Dutch registered companies avoid tax, as well as investigations into the European Union, into deals struck by the tax office with the likes of Starbucks and Ikea. So why is the Netherlands feeling the heat over its tax arrangements and what do politicians want to do about them? I mean, the Netherlands is feeling the heat because the IKEA corporate headquarters, known for its Swedish furniture, is actually headquartered here in Delft for tax reasons. Yeah, and not just them, but Starbucks no, have there's the a European whole bunch headquarters of them. You in too, Amsterdam. right? I mean, yeah. uh, Apple has gotten in trouble for these sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. So, Gordon, how popular is the Netherlands as a tax haven? Well, there's a report by an organization called SEO uh, in 2013 that found that there were 12,000 multinational holding companies uh, based in the Netherlands. And yeah, they include, uh, like you say, companies like IKEA, Starbucks, also Coca Cola, uh, Gucci, U2, the Rolling Stones, the estate of Elvis Presley, David Beckham. You know, you can, you can go on and on and on. And there's an organization called the Netherlands Foreign Investment Agency, whose job it is basically to, uh, they set up offices in countries around the world and actually go out and try and entice companies to base themselves in, in, in the Netherlands. So, you know, as an American, the tax rates here are seem totally crazy high um, compared to what we pay at home. So how does tax avoidance for companies here work? Yeah, so yeah, like you say, the corporate rate for domestic companies uh, is uh, yeah uh, relatively high, certainly compared to uh, the US and even some European countries like Ireland. But um, the tax avoidance is kind of set up where companies will set up letterbox firms, and they're set up through uh, trust companies who specialize in uh, making these arrangements, uh, about 75% operated that way and um, and so they, they literally have a business address 
yeah, uh, they employ uh, nobody or maybe one or two people uh, in that company. That allows them to minimise their kind of expenditure and the, the amount of tax they're liable for, because um, obviously a lot of taxes are, are on wages. Uh, and the uh, SEO report found that uh, 278 billion uh, euros flows through shell companies each year, um, and the sector's worth about 13,000 jobs, but that only works out as about one per company. And the other way that uh, companies avoid tax in the Netherlands is, is larger companies uh, um, have in the past done deals with the tax service. So a company like Starbucks has uh, actually, um, uh, before it moved to the, or set up its European headquarters here, it actually sat down with the, uh, you know, with the tax uh, office and uh, uh, agreed to pay a kind of a discount rate of tax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., the state of Delaware is known for being the sort of tax haven of the U.S. And something like half of the Fortune 500 companies, U.S. Fortune 500 companies are uh, headquartered in Delaware, um, which no one has ever heard of other than the fact that my parents live there. But it's a similar thing, right, that they have like an office with a secretary and like a, or maybe just a P.O. box. And basically they do that because there's no corporate income tax in the state of Delaware. So you can kind of funnel all of your profits through that. Mm. So does that work similarly here? I mean, how does this uh, sort of how does this process work exactly? Yeah. And quite often it's done through kind of several stages. So there was a construction that was a famous uh, discovered about a decade ago called the double Irish with Dutch sandwich. That sounds like an interesting term for a, uh, a, a tax uh, avoidance scheme. Yeah, it sounds like, more like something you get down at Subway or something, but um, the way a company like Google used it, and uh, so you would, Google was uh, had its uh, was based in Ireland, uh, so it would transfer its profits to Bermuda, but the Irish authorities uh, put a high tax rate on doing that directly, so they'd actually route it through the Netherlands. So first they would transfer the money to uh, to, to their Dutch branch, and then it would go out of from here into Bermuda, and on that, um, because there wasn't any tax imposed on that by the Dutch authorities, they then basically avoided paying corporation tax altogether and they got their actual tax liability down to around about um, 0.1% of their profits. It's like what 11 billion or something in 2016. They saved about 11 yeah. billion dollars in tax using that mechanism. So if this is the case right that that, uh, that companies are paying a significantly lower tax rates what is the advantage to host countries for doing this? Well the thing is you have a company that sets up here but doesn't actually have any kind of you know uh, footprint in the economy so you know it doesn't have people using public services uh, you know schools hospitals roads whatever so it takes it still takes in some tax from these companies a small amount but still it's a net gain because there's no actual it doesn't actually contribute you know, you know to to the expenditure on public services and of course also the prestige of having uh, these uh, big names um, hosted here and uh, you know multinational firms do employ around about uh, 80,000 people in the Netherlands and the argument is that if they didn't do it then another uh, you know small uh, economy like uh, Luxembourg would do it uh, in, instead uh, so, so, so you know they're turning away uh, income from um, profitable companies so when you think of tax avoidance you know especially in Europe, you think more Switzerland and, and, and Luxembourg, as you just mentioned. So wh- how is it that the Netherlands is worse or better, I guess, than, uh, than these places? <laughs> yeah, it's good. I think part of it is uh, that they were, um, uh, yeah, you, you had the foreign investment agency that was literally going out and uh, in, uh, encouraging companies to come and base here. So they had kind of a, almost an aggressive or proactive approach to getting companies to come base themselves here. Um, and uh, obviously it's uh, because you're also you're within the European Union, so you've got, it gives you access to the whole 
European market and there's kind of been a competition a kind of race to the bottom within Europe um, uh, Ireland is another country that has gone in for this a lot uh, where uh, a few um, European economies have consciously you know tried to um, lure companies away from um, the rest of Europe uh, because again you know you have this uh, situation where you're taking in uh, tax from these companies where, but not actually not actually contributing to your to your spending that ends up with this kind of some merry-go-round situation so it was discovered uh, a few years ago that I think 19 of the 20 biggest listed companies in Portugal uh, had their registered offices in the Netherlands, which is a big problem for Portuguese, obviously, because these companies are then not paying tax in Portugal, but they've got people that are working there, you know, sending children to school, uh, getting sick and going to hospital, driving on roads. Uh, but the, the Portuguese exchequer isn't taking any money, it's taking less money than it, uh, than it would do from these companies, so it's got less to pay for its services. And then when a recession comes along and the com- country goes into debt, it then has to call on the European Union to bail it out. Who pays the bailout money? Countries like the Netherlands. Right. So you'd think it'd be more efficient in the long run to just have the companies pay tax where they're based right. I think that's the European Union is now coming around to that kind of way of thinking yeah. but for a long time there's been kind of a laissez-faire attitude and while economies were doing well no one really thought that this was a problem or something that needs to be tackled and now since the recession they've taken a different stance on it yeah and it's been quite sticky because so uh, I know that this is the case with Apple in Ireland where they sort of had this advantageous tax arrangement with the Irish government Apple did and the EU decided that they were not paying a sufficient amount of tax and so there was this sort of court case before the European court and the court concluded that yeah they they had not uh, paid a sufficient amount of tax so they ordered Apple to pay money to Ireland and the Irish government says no we don't want it so it's it's quite a it's quite a difficult uh, situation I think to regulate in that sense yeah and the same thing happened with Starbucks and the Dutch government I mean the the EU um, said in 2015 so two years ago that uh, it it, uh, had a ruling that uh, the Dutch government's uh, tax deal with Starbucks was the equivalent of state aid and um, the the EU is very sharp on uh, anything that sees as state aid um, as being anti-competitive so it ordered the Dutch government to recover somewhere between 20 and 30 billion in back taxes and the Dutch government said no we, we don't want this money from Starbucks you know, we, we'd rather have them because we might drive them away as a company and it, it argued that it was offering certainty in advance by doing a tax deal otherwise it, it was giving Starbucks a clear picture of how much tax it would have to pay if it was based here uh, so yeah it's, it's, it's a difficult thing for the EU to kind of uh, to try it is trying to kind of turn the screws now I think more on member states and trying to get them to um, have uh, to harmonise their tax rules so they don't have this kind of uh, situation where they're all competing with each other within a currency zone I think that's the, you know, the, 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 the mad thing about it you're effectively kind of you know you're sort of undercutting each other um, but in the end that's weakening the whole European economy yeah so this week we're, we're discussing this because there is this ongoing sort of parliamentary investigation um, into these these sorts of things. So what's what's going on with that? Yeah, so it's a two-week investigation. It's not a full parliamentary inquiry. It's uh, a sort of slightly um, lesser uh, version of that. It's a, it's a new uh, kind of way of um, for Parliament to uh, ask questions about these it's issues. It's like a diet Parliament It is. It's a kind of a light version, a kind yeah. of cola light version. Yeah. yeah um, so uh, the, the Socialist Party wanted to have a full inquiry, but the Parliament as a whole said no, and they were going to go for this uh, investigation. Uh, but people are still questioned under oath, so it's still obliged to tell the truth. Uh, but another restriction on it is that a lot of potential witnesses to, originally they wanted to uh, call to the inquiry have been um, uh, have been rejected by the Parliament, so there won't be any representatives of companies like Starbucks or IKEA. There won't be any kind of um, private millionaires who've um, squirreled away their wealth uh, in offshore 
tax havens. Uh, it's mainly going to be people who are involved in the investigation and inspection, um, people who work for the tax service, that kind of thing. But uh, and also tax advisors, uh, people like I mean the manager uh, or in the Netherlands of U2 and the Rolling Stones's um, business, uh, he's going to be giving evidence on Monday. And the purpose of the investigation, um, according to Henk Nijboer who's the uh, Labour Party MP, who's uh, who's chairing it. He says he wants to set out in as much detail as possible how the Dutch trust sector and financial advisory world works. So it's really to get a bit more kind of transparency, really, in what's a very kind of opaque, clandestine uh, sort of world of uh, you know, financial dealings. Right, but both the VVD and the uh, PVV have declined to put anyone sort of on this panel. So it's it's the investigation is being done by the PVD, SP, GroenLinks, CDA, Christian Union, D66? Yeah, it's kind of been led. Uh, the whole initiative has been sort of driven by the um, by the left-wing parties so the, the socialists I think came up with the idea uh, Labour and Cool Links uh, were also very much on board the Christian Uni and D66 and uh, the CDR are also and it's CDR the only real sort of right-wing party among that the whole panel uh, the Faith of Day said uh, that they didn't want to um, include an MP their view was that uh, the rules are being reformed and they should just uh, you know let that process carry on and that was enough for them um, and Geert Wilders' party the PVV have, have also declined to get did, involved did they decline because they weren't allowed to live tweet the uh, <laughs> Probably, yeah, or, or just maybe the other parties said they weren't going to work with them. So. Yeah, well, it's, it's totally possible. Yeah. So it seems to me that if the you know the Netherlands can investigate this till the end of days, and that's fine, except that unless there's total buy-in from the European Union, there's really no incentive for them to change the rules here, right? I mean, as you said, you know, 19 of the 20 biggest companies in Portugal are headquartered here. They're not headquartered here in the sense that, like, their physical office buildings and their managers and their secretaries and their engineers or their designers or their whatever actually live and work here, but that they just have a letterbox thing here. So there's some tax money being paid from these companies to the Dutch government with very little cost to these social services as you were mm. saying so what is the incentive for the netherlands to actually to do this yeah, that's the thing there's not really very much and uh, i think really it's more about uh, if anything it's about kind of reputational damage and that the view i think of um, tax avoidance has uh, has changed certainly since the recession and the, the you know the, and the crisis um yeah, that, was, that, that was brought on by uh, by the banks so um, yeah but uh, you know i mean uh, Wouter boss who was a labor finance minister in 2002 you know he he, he, he tried to deal with a, a loophole that u.s companies were using where they basically flipped their profits between um, between america and the netherlands and that allowed them to avoid larger um, uh, amounts of tax that really came to nothing um, and now in February this year Parliament's uh, finally adopted a motion that's going to try and close that loophole uh, within the next three years that's like two decades after they started addressing the issue right. but certainly the Panama Papers I think spotlighted the issue again and some MPs um, ten- tend to be from you know the Labour Party or parties on the left have said it's doing no good to the reputation of the Netherlands uh, around the world uh, that, that uh, uh, people know it's uh, that it's becoming known as you know the the third biggest tax haven in the world and it's nestling in among countries like you know um, Bermuda, Monaco, Andorra um, and all the rest of it. Right but it, it just seems to me that like the, the it's very unlikely to change unless the European Union changes its rules right I mean so like okay fine the Netherlands strengthens its its laws and doesn't allow these sorts of things to happen well these companies are just going to pack up and go to Luxembourg and Malta so it's, it, it, it almost seems like a bad deal for the Netherlands to actually to make any changes here so is the European Union trying to do anything to fix this? Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the, the disincentive, certainly, that uh, you know, for as long as there are other countries in the EU where they can move to, you know, that's what companies will do. And that's sort of been the argument from some parties that uh, you know, we might as well do this because uh, you know, if we don't, then, uh, then, then Malta will just snatch these uh, companies from under our noses. So you know, the, the EU has, has talked about uh, ramping up its antitrust rules. Certainly there have been these rulings, uh, like the Starbucks ruling, uh, so it's been more um, you know, uh, um, proactive in tackling the issue. Um, 
but uh, yeah, and it is gradually trying to sort of uh, harmonise its tax rules. But as ever in the European Union, things, things take a long time. You've got to agree things between 27 countries, all with different agendas and uh, different perspectives on it. And of course, there are uh, countries like Luxembourg, which is, you know, the home country of the European Union president, Jean-Claude Juncker, you know, who, who tend to kind of stall and drag their feet on any kind of reform. So yeah, the, the, the intention is there, but whether it's going to translate into actual action in any time soon looks, yeah, looks like a tall order. And eventually, of course, you know, these companies might end up pulling out of Europe altogether. So that's another thing that uh, uh, European Union ministers are mindful of. Yeah, and I'm sure um, the uncertainty with Brexit is probably not helping to move discussions about this going forward because well, it's a bit of a distraction for the EU. Yeah, it's a distraction for the EU. And of course, the other thing is, I mean, so, some um, uh, people in in Britain, particularly you know, um, people who favour kind of a hard Brexit, you know, which is you know, pulling out of all kind of European agreements and arrangements, have uh, argued that, you know, Britain's future is now to sort of set itself up as a low tax economy just off the shores of Europe and uh, use that as a way of uh, drawing business from the EU. So that that's another kind of uh, thing that Brexit it brings into play right you might end up with uh, britain actually you know uh, becoming this uh, uh, country trying to you know trying trying to entice business across the channel in the same way that the netherlands foreign investment agency has been has been doing um you know for the last uh, couple of decades so where's my tax break <laughs> yeah where's mine as well yeah right i mean i could i, I I'll, I'll take a tax break that's yeah. fine with yeah me. do you not get a 30 percent rule no i'm not a 30 percent rule eligible <laughs> no, I mean, person either. it's yeah. really uh it's really gutting to be honest i mean yeah, it's, exactly yeah it's so. terrible when you actually have to pay full tax and uh, and fund the schools and hospitals. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't have kids. Why should I have to pay for these schools? <laughs> yeah. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Molly Quell. I'm Gordon Darroch, and we'll be back hopefully with Paul Peters next week. Mm-hmm.